Welcome, everyone, into the Hypertime, the Hypertime to Podcast. I am your host, Josh Miller, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, my friend, the podfather himself, Alan Muir. Alan, how are you doing today? I'm fine being myself, which is a general boy chick. (laughs) There's some Yiddish for you, listeners. You know, sometimes it's hard to be yourself. I know sometimes I regret it. (laughs) I gotta love that. Um, have you ever read DC uh, Legacies? Uh, I don't believe so. Is that the one they did like in the mid two thousands where they're like going back over the history or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I've seen the covers because that was like a Dan Jurgens thing, wasn't it? Uh, no, at me... least covers. Uh, yeah, it was like okay. uh, Dan. Jer- I think it was Dan Jurgens who did the covers, but Len Wein did like he he was doing like the each decade. And I love everything he did when it came to the uh, Golden Age, just like the way they talked back then. So as they like progressed through each generation, did it like was there a noticeable difference between the dialogue like as it aged up? Yeah. So like in the Golden Age, that word I used, boy chick, that's that's said in the like 30s, 40s, (laughs) which, as I as I said before, is Yiddish for young man. Yeah, we're going to definitely be uh, talking about some more of that dialogue and stuff, because today our topic is All-Star Comics number eight. And while it does have quite a bit of story in it, there is mainly one part of it that is kind of recognized um, above all the other parts of the book. And that is the introduction of Wonder Woman, uh, how she came into comics and... Yeah, I thought this would be a good number eight, as it's hard to deny Wonder Woman's importance. You know, not even in just comics, but kind of as a uh, a major point for women in general in terms of equality and propping them up as equals to to men, <laughs> basically. Um, and she did a lot of that. This is also the issue where Green Lantern or uh, yeah, Alan Scott is sort of taken off the team. And replaced by uh, Dr. Midnight. Yeah, they just kind of like right from the get go introduced two characters to the team and in a way kind of uh, brush off a few of the other ones <laughs> that had been talked about um, in the previous issues. Yeah, um, this is back when Hawkman was, you know, this is obviously when Hawkman was leading the team. And the team at this point was Hawkman, the, the Atom, Spectre, uh, Starman, uh, Dr. Midnight. Sandman, honorary members, Superman, Batman, Flash, Green Lantern, and uh, your favorite character, Johnny Thunder. Uh, how he <laughs> continued to uh, stick around is still beyond me. And his story in this one isn't any better than it was when <laughs> we were introduced to him in All-Star Comics number three. Oh, man. that And his story, had, there's a moment where it just, like a little body horror stuff. <laughs> and I just... I almost checked out immediately. So let's go ahead and get into the book. Um, there's really not too much, at least not that I'm aware, Alan, of things leading into the typical JSA story. Um, so a lot of what I'm focusing on is more on Wonder Woman, since that is kind of the biggest part of this book. Um, did 
are you aware of anything specifically regarding the JSA side? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't really find anything on it since so much of it was focused on Wonder Woman. So I just wanted to double check with you before we got going on that. So to start with Wonder Woman here, it begins with the inventor of the lie detector test or the polygraph in William Moulton Marston. And back in October 1940, there was an interview with him in Family Circle magazine that caught the eye of Max Gaines. And he had mentioned that the comic book medium had untapped potential um, that after he had studied it, he noticed like from the art to the layout to the writing, there was something special there that many people were not paying as much attention to comics as they should be. That it was, I mean, even today, I think comics are kind of more under the radar as like a proper medium in a way. People still typically shun it away as like a kid you know, a kitty thing. I mean, um, Frederick Wortham did say that people who read comics are going to, they grow up to be juvenile delinquents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't done, I mean, I, I'm, I, don't, I, I haven't done any bad things. I'm definitely still a juvenile in some respects, but delinquent might be going a little too hard. I mean, my school uh, said I was emotionally unstable, which, I'm not going to go into because that would be a lot of me cursing at people at my school <laughs> or my high school. Yeah, you would think after, let's see, was it 70 years, 80 years, technically, that something will have changed there. But no, I still don't think comic books quite get the recognition outside of, you know, pow, pow, superheroes like to punch each other kind of <laughs> like recognition, I guess. Yeah, uh, something I noticed even though I'm still not supporting iFanboy, but I plan on doing restarting that Patreon pledge. Mm-hmm. But they, but someone brought up, why don't the uh, Marvel or DC, why don't they try to promote the comics or the stories and movies that are being, like the storylines that are being used? Uh, Batman v Superman, putting in a, like a, a little thing for like advertising Death of Superman and Dark Knight Returns, and they can't, and the, the reason is, or at least for DC, they can't afford to do it. Huh. Yeah, it's really weird, because, like, after the movies, typically what you'll see is them try to change the comic books to match the movies more, uh, especially the Marvel side of things. Um, DC, oh, yeah. I think, is trying to stay more away of what the movies <laughs> have done. But, yeah, well, definitely with... Uh, there was a uh, back during the New Fifty Two, like the DC was doing like multimedia like marketing, which saw certain which saw sales actually go up, huh. but nothing like that since. Considering AT and T are a bunch of assholes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do remember like the banners and stuff at the top of the covers and whatnot. Now, not to mention it. Yeah, like like I, I have it burned into my brain. Uh, Doctor Who series six, just having the, the that advertisement on the uh, on back of every single new fifty two book. Hmm. So yeah, as we mentioned, uh, you know, Marston was kind of aware of all this. Um, so Max Gaines had brought him aboard National Periodicals and All American Publications, which would later turn DC Comics um, to be an educational consultant in hopes to put 
his potential to the test. And Gaines up to that point had kind of been criticized pretty widely for the content in the book, seen as, um, at the time, sex horror serials. And so he brought uh, partially brought Marston on to create better books while also having his reputation bring comics to a more respectable level um, because he was going to be involved in them. And so Marston, he wanted to contribute something as well while he was there. And so he wanted to create a hero that would win the day based on love instead of brute strength. Um, And part of the inspiration came from his wife, Elizabeth, who had suggested using a woman in place of a man. And so he had taken this idea to Gaines, who had, after, I guess, a little bit of back and forth about whether or not it would work, um, had given it his approval, and he created Suprema, the Wonder Woman, in hopes to be an inspiration for the 40s, like, unconventional and liberated woman. But as we know today, Suprema is not what Wonder Woman is called, and that's because it was dropped, but he still viewed her as, like, the ideal individual to run society. Um, someone who was strong and powerful, but didn't lack the things that made women strong. Uh, love, compassion, peaceful, you know, all that stuff. Um, so his intent was to create a feminine character with all the strength of Superman, plus all the allure of a good and beautiful woman. And so that is kind of the background of what he was trying to do with Wonder Woman, in a way. As for the design, this came from a number of places. So... Marston had modeled Wonder Woman off of another woman who had lived with him and his wife in their uh, polyamorous relationship named Olive Byrne. And Byrne was the biggest inspiration for Wonder Woman's design. Um, You know, the physical appearance was taken from her, but also the bracelets of submission were modeled after her bracelets that she wore often as well. In terms of writing the character, both his wife Elizabeth and Olive were involved in writing the character. Elizabeth, for instance, studied Greek and would often work in the phrase suffering Sappho um, to be the catchphrase that Wonder Woman would be known by. But one of the things that... um, Did you know that he actually had Elizabeth, his wife, work extra to support the entire like clan, basically? (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, the way I think it was Gerard Jones who said it, either him or Mark Wade, he sort of, like, quote him, he talked his wife into working uh, extra to provide for him and his mistress. <laughs> and I think he also said that he, so, and said something along the lines of, so he, turned, so he was, so he turned out to be some clever thing about being a smooth talker. <laughs> and I, I just have to say that also, in the uh, Secret Origin, the story of DC Comics. Mark Wade is like the biggest critic of Wonder Woman, at least in the early, or in, the, in this period in time, saying that on the board, it's saying all the right things, but on, on the pages, and, Ryan, and it just cuts to Ryan Reynolds saying, or narr- narrating, saying, Wonder Woman is embraced mostly by little boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The. This is kind of similar to where we're getting into right here about. Yeah, so Marston believed in uh, bondage and submission being a respectable and noble practice, which is why it was often wrote into the Wonder Woman books. And that is one of the biggest critiques of 
his time on Wonder Woman. And it's kind of easy to see why when this woman who's supposed to be super powerful as Superman and everything can be depowered by being tied up in a uh, <laughs> get a little dirty here in a similar way that he was finding enjoyment of with his mistress as well. But to Marston, in, when it came to bondage and submission, um, and this is a quote from him. The only hope for peace is to teach people who are full of pep and unbound force to enjoy being bound. Only when the control of self by others is more pleasant than the unbound assertion of self in human relationships can we hope for a stable, peaceful society. So you can take that however you want. You know, to some, the idea that being bound as a weakness is often considered confusing. Um, to Marston, if it is to be believed, it was meant as a way to show not only his affinity to, bo- to bondage uh, with his, uh, you know, love life, I guess you could say, but also the suppression of women. And so that way, when Wonder Woman would break out of the bonds, it would also show his support of women not being subjugated. You know, you're saying all this, but this could just be because of how much I liked the I preferred the other story. But I got I to gotta say, I prefer the... New Frontier Wonder Woman. I would agree. <laughs> I am much more uh, in love with Darwin Cook's interpretation of all that. Yeah, in general, I've never really been fond of the whole bondage thing with Wonder Woman. I don't, you know. Yeah, it's it's uh, after the bondage bit <laughs> in the documentary where Ryan Reynolds mentioned it says like Wonder Woman is embraced mostly by little boys, and I just just think how how'd that get in. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I haven't seen the movie. There's that movie that's supposed to be based on Marston in the creation of Wonder Woman, I guess. Of course, I don't. I don't think I have it here. But there was a point in there in which I don't know how much of it is accurate. But one of the selling points, at least in the movie, was that you know boys love women. They love you know not only will the girls be interested in having a female superhero, but boys sure do love women, <laughs> especially when they're bound and look a little submissive. So, you know, how much of that is actually accurate in terms of real world selling? I don't know, but I could absolutely see that being a selling point to try and get Wonder Woman, you know, in the books themselves. So from there, uh, as I mentioned, All-Star Comics 8 does have some importance. Some of the ones that aren't typically recognized, but we have mentioned is the introduction um, of two members into the Justice Society. But, you know, obviously the biggest one being Wonder Woman. Uh, The book was published on October 21st of 1941. It had a cover date of January 1942. And the book featured three stories. The first one was about the JSA called Two New Members Win Their Spurs. The second one was more of a short story that didn't involve any superheroes of any sort called Hop Harrigan Sky Cutups. And then the last one was Introducing Wonder Woman. So the Wonder Woman story uh, was written, obviously, by William Moulton Marston. His pen name was Charles Moulton, and it was illustrated by H.G. Peter. And it was an eight-page story that served as a test to see if the concept of Wonder Woman would pique anybody's interest. And it absolutely did, uh, so much so that she would become a star in the anthology book Sensation Comics, which I have a feeling we will touch on at some point in the future. And... In doing so, she did what no other character before her had ended up doing, 
and that was receiving a solo book sooner than any of the other heroes up to that point. In this case, it was less than a year after her introduction in All-Star Comics number 8. I am glad that certain things in comics don't change. Like, every, no matter how long the the, the regular book will be, the backup story is always eight, eight pages. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I haven't even thought about that, but yeah, you're right. So Wonder Woman, you know, not only did she get her own solo book sooner than everything else, she also succeeded in a way that no woman previously had. Um, she was able to break the boundaries of the sexual divide of gender in comic books, proving that a woman could be a compelling and great superhero, just like the males that started it all. And, you know, that's something that we would continue to see grow, even if it wasn't as fast as it should have been. Um, but yeah, she was able to do that and still does to this day. She proved that women can be right up there with all the men. She can hang with the boys or whatever. And then, of course, the JSA story. And pretty much the notable thing there was the introduction of Dr. Midnight and Starman onto the team, uh, which will get us into the story that goes on in All-Star Comics number eight. So as you mentioned, Alan, uh, the book starts kind of with the introduction of its two members, Dr. Midnight and Starman. Uh, they kind of bring everybody up to speed, saying that Green Lantern is now an honorary member, like Superman, Batman, The Flash, and the Owlman Man uh, will have a leave of absence. And with these two members gone, this is the reason for Dr. Midnight and Starman joining the ranks. I'm assuming this is because that they were starting to succeed in their own books, maybe? Like, were they... Do you know offhand if they were getting more appearance like in other books because that wasn't that basically the whole point behind all-star comics number three is to bring lesser popular heroes kind of to the forefront yeah there's an i'm not sure if it's in the dc universe uh version but there's a uh it's an ad for uh green lantern book actually no, it's a, both flash and green lantern both their books our man i i'm not sure like I don't think he had any. Like he got anything, and I think I think it was more of a these characters will be will be in rotation. Ah, okay. Because like eventually there'll be a point where Hawkwoman will show up. Okay, so yeah, the story starts uh, kind of you know at another meeting of the Justice Society, and everyone seems to be running into the same dilemma with the cases that they're currently on, and it's all. Failures to stop crimes due to people going raving mad. And then almost on cue, uh, Dr. Midnight shows up claiming he needs everyone's help. And it seems to be about this uh, madness that is kind of overtaking everybody. And instead of murder, criminals are using this madness as a weapon. Uh, So the story begins and it kind of goes as to Dr. Midnight and how this all kind of came about. And so that's kind of how this whole story is separated out, is by each character doing their own thing while they're on one big giant case together. And so it starts out with Dr. Midnight um, at work with his secretary, Myra Mason. And he hears a radio bulletin about a man named John Graw having escaped from Oakdale Sanitarium, showing the symptoms that the Justice Society are currently seeing with other criminals. Uh, so Dr. Midnight takes it upon himself and his companion Hootie 
to stop Gra before he does harm, and immediately after hopping out of his office, Gra attacks him. Like, of course, why should we go on a search for him? He's just going to show up right outside the office of where Dr. Midnight would be. Uh, however, learning a trick that Dr. Midnight learned in college, uh, he uses Gra's momentum against him as he lays down and propels him overhead using his legs, which is like the exact same attacks that they used in All-Star Comics number three to defeat a number of villains there as well. So it's nice to know this is something they probably all learned in college, too. But Gra, unlike some of those other characters, attacks again, and Dr. Midnight kicks him in the face using a uh, tree limb as a bar, allowing him the advantage to tie him up. So he just kind of jumps up in the tree, grabs it, and then swings and kicks him right in the face. And then... I will say about Hootie, uh, ha- you, have you seen Stargirl yet? I have not, no. Well, the, the, be- the, first, the opening to the first episode is basically the death of the JSA by the Injustice Society. And there's a episode, I think two, one or between one or two episodes later, they go to the hall of justice or the JSA headquarters. And Hootie is there. I was going to say, don't tell me he's dead. <laughs> don't tell me they killed Hootie. No, they, no, they, they actually, um, Pat Dugan says that Hootie has been there ever since Dr. Midnight Wildcat, Green Lantern Flash that ever since they all died. <laughs> and a character they end up having Dr. Midnight on as a character basically through uh as basically like a Jarvis type AI. Which huh. is actually yeah, it's a, it's it's an actual it's an interesting concept. And they actually um do you mind if I spoil Oh go ahead. Uh spoilers, people. Do some base I'm not gonna I won't say exact I won't give specifics. But in the uh, season finale, the glass, the uh, Dr. Midnight's iconic goggles get destroyed and that breaks or that finally actually kills the consciousness of um, Dr. McNider. Hmm. And I will say when I when they character who is the new basically the new Dr. Midnight uh, discovers the goggles. And as soon as I heard the, the voice, like, I mean, and I don't know who the voice actor is. But as soon as I heard it, my heart filled with glee. <laughs> That's how much of a... Like, I should have been born in the 40s, man. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a little after the 40s, after the war and everything is finished. Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, no, no. The 40s, I shouldn't be anywhere near the 40s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, back to the story. <laughs> back to the story. So uh, using a blood test, Dr. Midnight is able to connect this disease back to apes. So he is checking on Professor Abel, who discovered the disease originally. And the caretaker there informs him that the professor is in Africa, but allows Dr. Midnight to check the lab. And he believes he finds the cure and tests it out on an ape that's caged nearby in the lab. And everything seems to work fine. So he takes it back to Graw and cures him too. And then Graw kind of comes out of it and informs him of everything that happened. Um, his lawyer had drugged him uh, when an investigation was about to start with Grog coming clean about the corrupt political ring, which there are so many of in these comics. Uh, so Dr. Midnight decides to pay the lawyer a visit and he finds evidence such as a hypodermic needle and notes of the political ring involvement, but hides when the lawyer and a political boss enter the room. And as they're spilling the beans, 
in their uh, evil villain monologue moment out loud. Dr. Midnight busts into the room and surprises them with a blackout using his ability to see in the darkness as a method to capture them both. And then using some fear tactic, he gets them to write confessions. And at that time, we see a shadowy Dr. Elba enter the room and knock Dr. Midnight out from behind. Thankfully, Hootie is able to get in the face of Elba before he can shoot Dr. Midnight. But the wild shot spooks him into thinking the police will arrive, so he flees. And then the next day, we see Myra reading a paper mentioning that Graw is innocent, and it's thanks to Dr. Midnight. But Dr. McNighter uses the excuse that not everything was wrapped up cleanly as a reason that Dr. Midnight does not exist. Uh, So then we cut back to Dr. Midnight at the Justice Society requesting assistance in finding this Dr. Elba, and they all agree to do that. Uh, That's kind of where... Dr. Midnight gives them the cure and they all run out to do their own separate stories of them trying to find Dr. Elba here. And so the first one that we get to see continue here is Dr. Fate. And we see him giving a cure to a man named Bill Ford and Ford comes to and mentions that someone named God, Alan, the names in these books are so fantastic. The name is Goopy Gus Gluck. Yeah, when I saw that, I kind of got, I got, I got excited. <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah, I love them. There's just something about the names in the Golden Age of comics. <laughs> so Goopy Gus Gluck, and I'm going to say that name every time. I'm not going to shorten it whatsoever. Uh, Goopy, can you, do, can you do me a favor when this goes on the site? Sure. Italicize the name. Italicize and, the name. And. And bolt, make it bold each time he, that that character is mentioned. <laughs> okay, I will underline it as well. Yeah, just go, just go top notch with it. <laughs> so Goopy Gus Gluck abducted his wife Marge, and this is Bill Ford's wife, in an attempt to get him out of the bus franchise that's making money. Uh, Doctor Fate looks into it and busts in on some of Goopy Gus Gluck's men, who give him the whereabouts of Marge Ford. And tells Dr. Fate to plan about kidnapping her to have Bill sign off on everything to Goopy Gus Gluck. And I'm a little confused at this point because they call him Bill Benson instead of Bill Ford. Maybe that's something I miss later on the story, but yeah, I don't know. So yeah, he goes to the houseboat that they are holding her at and begins giving them all a wallop. Uh, Some of the dialogue here is fantastic. Uh, One of the quips that Dr. Fate has is a lot, a little quiet here, please. Uh, and then one of the crooks say, you got quiet, all right. He's out like a light. I just love how the crooks go along with all of the quips perfectly. So good. God, I love the Golden Age dialogue and whatnot. It's cheesy, but oh, it's so fun. So Dr. Fate rescues Marge and takes her back to Bill. He then goes after Goopy Gus Gluck, who realizes Dr. Fate is on the case. Uh, Goopy Gus Gluck decides to wreck the bus to make it more trouble for, again, they say Bill Benson, I'm still assuming is Bill Ford. Uh, so they devise a plan and make a bus stop so they can hijack it. And then when they do, Dr. Fate reveals himself to be the bus driver with some trickery. And after some more witty quips, stops the man, decides to start wrecking Goopy Gus Gluck's car. So when Goopy Gus Gluck steps out of the car, Dr. Fate flings him over his shoulder headfirst into the bus, which should have probably killed him. But, you know, comics, he's totally fine. Uh, yeah, so doc- I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking at Goopy Gus 
sails through the air and smacks his head against one of Bill Ford's buses. <laughs> he just goes, "Ow, oh, wow!" He should be dead. He should be he- at least mentally dead. <laughs> yeah, he should be out of it. It looks like he just has like a little black eye and is completely coherent in answering Doctor Fate. You know what? Um, on Smallville Chronicles, Lou and I always have we have a running thing where we talk about on Smallville. There is so, so much damage done to cars where we keep it like we don't say we don't have we don't keep a tally. We just say that there's another case, another car blown up. Or and we also do a, a head trauma thing with Lex because it's uh-huh. happened. We're, we're on season six. Uh, okay, like we're getting close to the wedding, and the amount of times that Lex has been hit in the, in the head, we have we've said so many times. Oh, there's no, there's CT number five or something, <laughs> and I'm thinking we should start doing this whenever whenever we should have a counter, a CT counter, for whenever we do golden age stories. <laughs> we might need to because it's kind of ridiculous how a lot of these people should very clearly be dead but yeah um they're not going to just flat out no i can't say they're not going to flat out kill someone i remember dr fate like melting or evaporating that one dude in issue three so oh yeah yeah you know maybe it's just like a man who's named goopy gus gluck is just too strong to be taken out by a going head first into the you know the tail of a car so yeah uh goopy gus can I just say what, it kind of just, I just want to say that what do the like the speech between uh, Kent and Goopy. Oh, sure. Uh, so Kent said, or Dr. Fate goes, the idea is never try to kid me or any other member of the Justice Society when we ask a question. And Goopy responds with, please don't bother teaching me anymore. I think I understand everything. <laughs> and then it cuts to him. I, I I don't know if he's wearing if he's wearing a monocle or something because something is wrong with his his face. Yeah, like I mean, it looks like it could be a black eye, but like I don't know. No, it looks like <laughs> someone made a inking or ink mistake. Possibly. And he then goes, "There, I've told everything now. Now can I go away where I where I won't see you anymore? <laughs> you scared me. <laughs> this time I really will oblige you." And he he takes him and flies off. Or doesn't fly off. He grabs. He grabs. Um, Goopy takes flight and says, "Look right. Look right down below you, Goopy. You can see the place where you're going. Just where you're going to stay. So you won't see me for quite a while." And he responds with, "Oh, jail." <laughs> and then we get some stuff with Enza, where Kent gives Bill the uh, Goopy's Goopy Gus's confession, and Bill's response of, "Gosh, all our troubles are over just like that." Everything is wrapped up so nicely in these stories. And yeah, the and I love how uh, the Adam just hit how casually he just jumps over the stairs. Yeah, I was just looking at that. It's like something out of like one of those old sitcoms or something, (laughs) you know, with the staircase in the background. And normally people just like run down the stairs before they get in the scene. And nope, here he is just kind of jumping right over it. Yeah, I was expecting him to do like a three pit three panel thing where he'd be sliding down or skating down, even though skating hadn't been invented yet, <laughs> or the skating I'm thinking of. But yeah, the, oh no, this is part part of the Adam story. Sorry, so yeah, so yeah, everything just kind of moves forward as Doctor Fate goes to look for Professor Elba too. So it cuts to the Adam who how he why he ended up upstairs. After visiting the Justice Society, I don't really know. Instead of coming in through the front door. But yeah, he gives the serum to the man he has tied up on his couch. And 
learns that there is a jewel heist going on that he was originally part of with as Al Pratt. Um, since he was working at the jewelry store, he was starting to happen at. So, you know, a man comes into the store and tries to sell this jewel, which in the story is uh, spelled J O O L. I don't know if that's some slang uh, or a dialogue. Or, uh... <laughs> it's certainly not a error as it's, I'm currently looking at the same thing. Yeah. I'll, so I, I, I'll check for. I'm worried that if I type in jewel, it'll bring up. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it could be something bad, <laughs> but yeah. Anyways, he goes to try and sell this jewel and Al gets this suspicion that, well, he needs to bring it to his manager's attention. And the manager decides that it looks suspicious and it must be stolen. So he has Al go get a cop. But uh, in doing so, the man's lawyer comes in and decides he's going to sue them for $50,000. but he'll be willing to settle for $1,000 in cash. And so Al thinks something fishy is going on, so he changes into the Atom and meets them at their office where, as all villains do, just spread out their plans to each other willy-nilly as the hero listens on. Um, in this case, basically they ha- go to a jewelry store, have someone try and buy their jewel. If the person decides to do that, they decide to change their mind. And if they don't, and I guess the only other option is to get arrested, this is where they either get $50,000 to sue or $1,000 in cash. So as uh, Adam decides to join the party and teach them a lesson, and <laughs> there is a panel here where he looks so incredibly tiny. I don't know if you can see it, Al. It's the one where he like jumps in behind him, and he says... Nice night for walking, isn't it? For walking down to the police station and giving yourselves up. And he just, he looks so tiny. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's just like this weird art thing where his body is like probably about as thin. Well, his waist is probably about as thin as some of their hands are. Hell, it's probably smaller looking at it. It's probably about as big as their wrists. It's, yeah, it's just really proportioned there. It, it kind of I had to make a note in the notes. It's it, it really kind of looked too odd for me. So, yeah, as he's, you know, going at uh, him. Yeah, looks like he made he made a poor transition from from the, the previous panel. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, as Adam takes the jewel thief out, uh, the lawyer shoots a blow dart at the man, causing him madness that they all starting to come under. And so he ties him up, which is when he goes to visit the Justice Society. And so the story goes back to present time and the man tells Adam where he gets the jewels from, which is some mansion in Fall City. Uh, so Adam goes there and busts in and immediately takes on the crooks there. And there's okay. some... I did the research for jewels. Oh, for jewel. OK. And it's and the result is making me want to just punch my computer, my, my monitor. Just it, all, the definition is just archaic spelling of jewels. Huh? <laughs> so you just. Yeah. Hard work. Great. So, so yeah, at this mansion, Adam busts in. And I really like how he busts in here because I guess he knocks on the door. And so the butler or whatever opens the door and says, but whom shall I say is called? Uh! And Adam pushes him aside and says, stand aside, brother. I can't wait to be polite. I have work to do. <laughs> and then he starts attacking them. And so here, uh, Adam calls the police and they end up showing up. And he leaves to find Elba and says, so long and keep them flying which at first I thought was some Justice Society catchphrase. 
because I notice it comes up several times by all the members. Uh, but there is another reason for it, and I'll get to that in our random trivia section. So the next person up is the Sandman. Oh, wait, uh, can we just mention the when he gets back to our, the brilliant name of uh, Hartford Dormley? <laughs> I mean, obviously this is fiction, but that name is very, that just reeks of fiction. <laughs> Like if, if word association association with me, Hartford. First thing I bring up, or I can think of Hartford Whalers, and I don't even like hockey. <laughs> so the same man, uh, he does what everyone else has done so far. He cures the person he has tied up, and so it kind of flashes back to him remembering the plan of taking pictures of well-known men and then selling them at high prices back to him. Oh, oh, oh no! <laughs> it doesn't sound quite as nefarious as it is. It just sounds stupid it's not like he's you know peeking in through windows or anything it's just this i guess the whole idea is that he doesn't want to show that the men you know these rich men can't afford to buy pictures of themselves or something i don't know it's it seems like a really lame plot to get 50 bucks for all these men so yeah it's all taking place at like this political convention and wesley dobbs is there of course and so Dodds, who kind of understands what the whole plot is, doesn't really like it and grabs his Sandman gear and goes to the place where the photographer is. So, you know, Sandman busts in through the window as he overhears the sender who said they were racketeers needs to be paid a visit. Um, and so as Sandman knocks out the goons, the photographer blitz and warns Ohulahi about Sandman. And Ohulahi gives the photographer the disease made by Professor Elba. And he catches up to Sandman and his partner, Diane, who leave the car. But, okay, I can't read my notes here properly. Yeah, I can't understand what I put here. <laughs> is this uh, where he sneaks up upon, um, uh, as I'm going to call him, Colonel Sanders? Yeah, the dude looks like astonishingly similar to Colonel Sanders. Like a big red bow tie that looks like it came off a Christmas present and everything. White goatee and mustache, yeah. You know... I got to give it, give the artist credit. It is amazing. I based on scale and everything with all this and like Sandman, that's gotta be one giant apartment or one giant like windowsill. <laughs> uh huh. Looks like you fit a whole, whole bunch of stuff on there. Whole bunch of books. <laughs> okay. So I think I see, I understand what my notes are saying now. So yeah, after, you know, Sandman knocks out these people, he leaves them in their car as he goes to do some more uh, investigating and the photographer finds them just kind of chilling out in the car and loads them up with Elba's serum, making them go mad. So when Sandman and Diane get back to the car, they have to restrain them. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, Sandman, or when Carl Sanders leaves the room, or he runs away, the two men try to subdue Sandman. He just does a basically Superman, where he, he, jump, he leaps forward with both, both fists out. <laughs> uh huh. And has some square in the face. Each each one of them square in the face. Two orders of knuckles coming up. If you like this, I can give you more. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> so yeah, after uh, you know, getting the cure and everything, Sandman knows what happened. Sandman, they tell Sandman where Ohula he's, you know, Colonel Sanders' offices, and Sandman gets there in time to stop them. And then police arrive, and one of them also tell you know tell Sandman to keep him flying. So there's that little motto again. And then Sandman is next as we see him flying back home to where a young boy 
and a tied up man are sitting. Uh, he administers the cure to the man and gets details on where a trunk of money came, uh, came from. And so it flashes back to where the boy discovered this house with the money. But as he runs out of the home to tell his pops, uh, he almost gets hit by a car, which was driven by Ted Knight, uh, Starman. A quick dodge, and he's able to sweep the boy up and pull him into the car in, like, the most remarkable <laughs> sort of way. Uh, like, doesn't even stop the car. He just swerves to the right and grabs the boy out the window as he's driving and pulls him into the car from the looks of it. God, these heroes have so much finesse. <laughs> so yeah he drives the boy back to his house and the boy explains what he saw and so ted tells the boy to go upstairs so a friend can see him and so he runs outside changes into starman and greets the boy upstairs the boy kind of tells him about the treasure box and everything so starman flies back to the house where he sees some crooks with the money and starman butts in with some amazing quips so yeah crooks see him and they're like it's starman run alabama in quotes Starman says, you house haunters haven't got a ghost chance. And they start singing, stars fell on Alabama, da-da-dee-dum, as he punches one dude. Three at one clip, how's that for a triple threat? Just, oh, the quips. I love them. I love the quips so much. It's so cheesy. Starman grabs one of the men who now has the disease, which at this point is when it flashes back to the present day. And the man spills the beans about the forgery documents um, on a governor who had paid money to have it disappear. So Starman goes to their hideout and takes out the rest of them and delivers them to the police. You know, before searching for Elba, he delivers the money back to the governor. And then it moves on to Hawkman. So Hawkman gets the deets on the man he has tied up. Um, another case of blackmail dealing with the oh. president of a trust company, uh, Preston Neville. Sorry, what okay. were you going to say? No, um, dialing back to uh, my comment about Our Man. Uh, these characters also, some certain characters are appear in Adventure Comics. So these characters all, none of them ever go away. They either have, they've either upgraded to the to being in a, like, get their own book, like Batman, Flash, Superman, uh, eventually Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern. And like, other characters will like Sandman, Superman, they appear in other comics. Okay. Because like the issue of, uh, when I was reading on the the online version of the comic, it had like it was touting that DC had 14 current t uh, titles or current mail order periodicals. So that's good. No, because yeah, the comicsology version doesn't have any in place. So all of that is completely unknown to me unless I were to go back and specifically look for why they weren't showing up in these books at this point. So yeah, with Hawkman, as so many stories here, it's dealing with blackmail for Preston. He has to pay the money and it'll all go away. He decides to go a different route and uh, decides to kill himself instead of putting his family in the position of embarrassment. So he drives up this old deserted road and Hawkman sees him drive off a cliff and decides to save him. And so Neville kind of tells Hawkman why he was doing it and about the blackmail attempt as Shiera Hawk Girl flies in. And so they both decide to help and fly off to get these men. Again, another keep them flying comment by Hawk Girl. So although Hawk Girl is the second to leave, she is the first to arrive where they spot her ahead of time. These criminals decide to use something called a lightning thrower to shoot her out of the sky, but it also foreshadows how one of the men is terrified to be killed by electricity. 
And the other man admits to being afraid of being crushed to death. So after they kind of admit that what they're afraid of, uh, both men go outside and see Hawkman coming in with trained Hawks. Uh, One man says they need to use this lightning machine again, but the other man is too scared of the lightning machine. So he decides to run outside and or he runs inside and locks the door, leaving the other man outside where Hawkman attacks him. Hawkman busts in, carrying the man over his shoulder and from a trap door where Hawkman can't see him, injects the virus into the unconscious man who goes crazy as Hawkman flies off with him. This is kind of where Justice Society comes back to the present day. Uh, We see Hawkman in time and fly to where Hot Girl is with the man not to try to escape, which means he will do that anyways. Um, But in doing so, he dislodges some stones, which leads to a large rock fall. And he dies the exact same way that was foreshadowed. He is crushed by all these falling rocks. So Man, Hawk- talk about hitting rock bottom. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all weekend. <laughs> I'll have to add in some like audible claps right there. So Hawkman finds uh, Shira alive. Thank God for the int metal belt that protected her with an aura. And then he flies to take care of the other man. But this man has a rifle and is attacked by some talking hawks, which I did not realize they could talk, but they do. And in fact, they say he aims a rifle. Wheat, take aim, drop loss or drop logs. The G is kind of hard to tell there. So yeah, these hawks uh, drop some logs on him, uh, lands right on his head, causing him to lose the rifle. And so as he's scrambling to grab it, he touches not only the metal part of the rifle, but also a live wire from the lightning throw machine. And the man dies his worst fear in electrocution. And then a fire that spreads throughout the building and destroys all the fake documents, which saves the uh, blackmail attempt. And Hawkman heads out to find Professor Elba as well. And here's a reminder that Hawkman appears each month in Flash Comics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like how they always have to like leave the character with like, hey, don't forget, you don't have to just read them here. Go find them elsewhere. We could use the money. (laughs) Wasn't the story good? You can get more like it here. That's this is the equivalent of watching a Doctor Who clip and then going to hearing Peter Capaldi say, subscribe for new, for more videos. <laughs> or don't forget to subscribe for, for, yeah, for new videos. So the next character here is the Spectre, and he is looking for a man named Luis who was left in a hospital ward but is no longer there. So he shifts into Jim Corrigan and finds out that he was transferred to a certain location per Boss Williams' instructions. And when he goes to investigate, it's, of course, a vacant house. So he decides to visit Boss Williams himself. Uh, He busts into the house. So (laughs) I kind of get a kick here because when he busts in, it looks like he basically chokes the woman to move her out of the way. Oh, God. Maybe it's not a woman. I put woman. Yeah, it's just Mr. Williams is not in. I'll find out for myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just completely pushes him aside. So, yes, Corgan confronts Boss Williams. He is hit from behind and pretends to be out. 
But as Corgan, you know, wakes up, Boss Williams warns him about all of the police and judges that crossed his path prior and shows him that Scaloni has gone mad from the disease. Boss Williams injects Corgan with the same disease, but as he does so, the specter escapes without being seen, uh, leaving Corgan's body lifeless like he had died or something. So the specter administers the cure to Scaloni, who then specter kind of goes a little beyond what he needs to here. He flies him out of the universe and leaves him on destroyed where he will be safe. I think that's a bit much. Deserted island or something. Locking him up in jail somewhere. No, he decides to take this man completely out of the universe and leaves him on an asteroid somewhere uh, to keep him safe. So Spectre returns and surprises the men there, pulling Boss Williams through the bars into the oh, cell. Don't forget his the guy saying, don't forget me. <laughs> Which I was really thinking he was going to because he kind of waits until the very end to do that. So he yeah, pulls Boss Williams through the bars and then enters Corgan's body again, who takes out the remaining goons. Uh, Corgan goes back to the police station and is told Scaloni needs to give the lowdown on Boss Williams. Another keep him flying reference is made here. And so <laughs> Spectre is like, oh, OK, I guess I'll have to go save Scaloni again. So he goes back and gets Scaloni from the asteroid and forces him to confess. And then after the confession, Spectre goes to grab Boss Williams, who has killed himself in the cell. And so it's uh, here that they have a little kind of break in the JSA story to tell the story of Sky Cutups a Hop Harrigan story, uh, much like that Johnny Thunder story in All-Star Comics number three. There's no pictures or anything. It's just a uh, almost like a newspaper clipping of the story or whatever. So Sky Cutups, the Hop Harrigan story, um, is about Hop, who is reading about this daredevil called Super Duper Man to his friend Tank and how he's supposedly greater than any other superhero. First of all, Super Duper Man sounds like a mad magazine type of parody on superhero. Well, I mean, well, it was. Was it? Yeah. Uh, keep talking. I'll, I'll bring up the uh, cover or the image. <laughs> it, it is a really good. It, it's re- both a really great, really funny uh, image. And it also kind of inspired Watchmen. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Find that for me, please. So, yes, the Super Duper Man will have a show later on. Um, Hop decides to go, but Tank says he has other engagements. And so at the show, superheroes like Superman, Batman, uh, Green Lantern, Flash, and Dr. Midnight are there to see all these stunts as well. Oh, my God, you're right. Super Duper Man. (laughs) That's awesome. And the man who was responsible for that? Bill Gaines, son of Max Gaines. Oh, my God. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Do you know when this was? Uh, This was in the, uh, I want to say, 40s or 50s. Huh. Or no, it was. It had to have been the 50s. I'm going to look that up after this. That's awesome. So the plane carrying Super Duper Man is flying overhead and Tank's airplane that he had been working on. And Super Duper Man must be Tank himself. So the first stunt is him power diving in the plane um, as he flies high up and then proceeds straight down. He thinks, you know, Tank is thinking that he's going to become popular and that might not happen because as he pulls up, 
He realizes the stick is stuck and he can't go anywhere but down. So Superman, realizing what's happening, leaps in to save the day. The next stunt has him leaping out of an airplane and not pulling his parachute until 200 feet from the ground. Of course, similar problem after the okay. leap. Um, our med magazine number four, 1953. Okay, so it's a little over 10 years after this. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> That's awesome. I wonder I, if they followed up on it at all in later years. Oh, man, I hope they did. Because I specifically remember in the 90s they did a take on Superman. I don't remember if it was Super Duper Man. But. And uh, just a little inside baseball. And hopefully I'm using that right. The original publisher, EC Comics, was they were best known for Tales from the Crypt. Oh. Which is basically where that came from. So, yes, the the history of comics is fascinating. It is. And it's kind of weird to see, like, stuff that you wouldn't think would be tied together, finding ways to be tied together. So, yeah, Super Duper Man proves he's not so super duper. Uh, you know, as he leaps out and decides to pull the shoot, he. I mean, the shoot does go. So there's that. But he's being directed to a lake and he is unable to miss it. So he lands in the water, but so does the parachute. So the shoot ends up weighing him down, pushing him further down into the water to drown. But the flash runs by and saves him. And then the last stunt is a. Poor imitation of a Wiley e. Coyote cartoon where he has wings that he's going to use to, I guess, fly or glide down to the ground after he jumps out. One of the wings malfunction and Hawkman joins him in the sky and cruises along with Tank as he fixes the wing. And then they both fly down to the ground together. So Tank does get $50,000 as for his stunts but he doesn't feel like he deserves it and puts an end to his super duper man days. At least until mad <laughs> magazine <laughs> resurrects it like 10 years later. Yeah. I mean, to be fair there, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily in relation to it, reactionary to this. It was more of just lampooning Superman. Yeah. Oh, Alan, here we get, uh, goes back to the JSA story. And unfortunately it's Johnny thunder. So Johnny clearly, master of problem solving and you know detective skills is trying to solve this case all by himself so oh is this the story with doodle yes oscar k doodle gotta love those 40s names (laughs) (laughs) so yeah johnny's trying to figure this all out by himself he doesn't want your bolts out um so he climbs up a pole and goes into an open window to bring this fake contractor named oscar k doodle Back to his senses. Johnny, of course, being the worst individual possible. I don't know if he jumps or he slides. It's hard to tell in the art. But he slides too far into the room and crashes into the wall where our are. Uh, Johnny throws a punch and hurts his hand in the process before he gets taken out in a weird attack that, I don't know, pulls his legs out completely under him. It almost looks like a weird version of the Boston Crab if the Boston Crab was like balancing Johnny completely on his head. Johnny throws a punch. The crook didn't even feel it from the looks of it. Asks if it's supposed to be funny. And then I'm guessing he bends down and pulls the legs out from Johnny. But the way it's done is so awkwardly put in the frame 
Hey, he doesn't like fresh kids. He doesn't like fresh kids. So, yeah, the crooks toss Johnny into the same room with the mad Oscar K. Doodle. Um, but as Doodle moves in, Johnny sticks up the needle, which cures Doodle. I, right. Uh, <laughs> that's, this is going to give me nightmares. Right into the hand. Like when he, when he, when Oscar, when Mr. Doodle, the Doodleman, be out, uh, when he just be like, ah. <laughs> or, I mean, not, not that, that low level of screaming, like just high pitch, like screaming. Yeah, you would think. Like, it looks like it went right into his palm. Yeah, yeah, it completely does. He seems unfazed, and then like even when he comes, you know, out of his madness, doesn't even seem to doesn't seem bothered at the very least that this idiot of a man stabbed him in the hand with a, you know, a syringe. <sighs> yeah, and he goes, "Now let's see. I was about to give you a full confession, young man, wasn't I?" <laughs> That's right, because I had the goods on you. But let's get out of here. Yeah, it's <laughs> my butler, the scamp with uncouth puzzlings. <laughs> I I now want to talk with in that voice whenever I do uh, win to throw everyone off. Yeah, it's funny because as they're trying to escape, Johnny's like doodle here is like, I like to go back and fire him. And Joe's like, there isn't time. First, I got to get your confession so I can throw you and the rest of the crooks in jail, which is the perfect way, Johnny, to convince someone to help you out. Yeah, you help help me while you're free, and then <laughs> immediately after you're into the slammer. <laughs> He's like the absolute worst individual. Uh, oh my god, I hate Johnny so much. I hate it. I mean, so he, it could, he could be um, Snapper Car, <laughs> who oh, Snapper Jesus. <laughs> I mean. Well, in most and like ninety percent, ninety five percent of his appearances, he's seen as a laughing stock. He did have that. There was that cool version of him, or at least cool to me version of him on Supergirl, where he was a hard ass uh, reporter. Was he? Yeah, he was played by one of the um, one of the guys from Cougar Town. Huh. So yeah, Doodle and Johnny escape, which apparently the crooks didn't have that building well guard. Whatsoever. They just kind of walk out. Um, and so they go to a restaurant for some burgers while Johnny gets his confession. Yeah, two hamburgers, pen and ink, and a lot of paper. <laughs> and then the waiter responds with, That's funny order, but every man to his taste. <laughs> and then Johnny realizes his mistake, saying, So you're not a real crook after all, Mr. Doodle? No, that's what I was trying to tell you when my, my vile butler came in and jabbed me in the arm. Oh God! Oh, DC Universe app did a, or did like a weird load, and how how his his face proportions? Yeah, yeah, his face kind of uh kind of morphs around a little bit. Yeah, very jolly. Uh huh. Yeah. So Doodle, you know, is found out to not really be the bad guy, which disappoints Johnny because uh, Johnny was really hoping that he had finally captured a real crook. Again, another keep him flying reference. I want to keep mentioning these because I, it did feel really weird running across these every every story. So yeah, Johnny goes to the police to get assistance around the gang, and you see a funny scene as Johnny drives by with the police in front of his love interest Daisy, who just assumes that Johnny's finally been arrested, which makes sense because Johnny should probably have been put in jail long ago. Um, well, 
I think that in um, by the time of Doomsday Clock, he's in a mental mental asylum. So <laughs> yeah, you tell me that. But then again, yeah, and then again, but then again, everyone he's everyone he cares about either doesn't exist anymore or is dead. <laughs> Which is exactly what Johnny deserves. And the thing is, I read Doomsday Clock. Or first, it was Rebirth, when Johnny is like nine, like had he has to be a hundred because of just how he looks visually. Mm. And then, did you read Doomsday Clock? I've not. You I did. You did show me, I think, a panel from it. Yeah, uh, with Johnny in it, though. It, it's a good. It was a good strategy for Jeff Johns to have Gary Frank draw that part, to, or Johnny Thunder's part too, because he shows up and. In uh, the Rebirth one shot, because he shows up in Doomsday Clock, and ironically gets to be a part of a team, sort of. It's wonderful and totally not garbage. <laughs> and I just have to say, I the father says, I knew he, I, I knew he'd come to a bad end. <laughs> See, everyone around Johnny knows how much of a. God, I'm trying not to cuss on the show. Uh, how much of a screw up Johnny is. So yeah, Johnny and the cops arrive uh, as the crook fake batch of concrete. Um, other crooks are in the process of selling this concrete, leaving the buildings uh, built on it with shaky foundations. And so as the police arrive, the crooks, uh, the crooks go up on top of one of the buildings to shoot at them, but the building is so wobbly and partially collapses, causing the men to be unable to move, buried by some of this rubble. No, that that killed them. You, yeah. Or at least cost him a, like a, a leg or two. Like I, I saw that I saw I saw the scene about Batman v Superman. That man lost his legs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no reason they should still be alive. They're like running across. It looks like in between two buildings on metal structures, and the whole thing collapses. And I mean, they look like they're. We'll talk, but get us out of this mess, says one of them. So they're clearly still alive. But again, like the, uh, who was it, Goopy Gus Gluck, should have been dead. They should have died right there. There's no excusing this. So Johnny, of course, gets this bright idea that he's going to take on the boss himself before the police arrive. And is knocked down again and rolled under a table um, as the police arrive, who takes the crooks away. And that's when Elba enters the room and knocks Johnny out again. Oh, he, he gets bonked on the head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Johnny tries to stop him. Crook knocks him on the head, which knocks him out and puts him on the table. And then, you know, Professor Elba comes in and knocks him out again by hitting him. <laughs> no, I imagine his, like, his injuries, not necessarily resulting in a CTE, but, like, the way they, it would be in the uh, in the Warner Brothers cartoons, where, like, they'd get hit it would just be like a giant bump <laughs> that's really tall. Yeah, you know, I read this and Johnny does kind of come off like a cartoon character and how much of a failure he is throughout these entire story. Like nothing goes right for him and everyone is kind of bailing him out. So, yeah, here he ends up waking up again uh, and basically in front of Elba and accidentally says, say you, which is how you summon the Thunderbolt. And then he inadvertently wishes for the members of the Justice Society to arrive, who, you know, Thunderbolt brings them all except for Dr. Midnight, who wasn't a full-blown member yet. Uh, lights go out, and the heroes apparently can't enter a dark room, 
So another wish is used to bring Dr. Midnight so he can go into the dark room and see. Uh, Dr. Midnight recognizes Professor Abel in the dark room, wondering how he was captured. But surprise, Abel is Elba. The uh, Dracula Alucard Castlevania twist because Elba is Abel backwards. But Elba is clearly not that smart because he accidentally stabs himself with this disease in the dark room and then falls out a window to his death during his little confrontation with Dr. Midnight. And then the last panel is the Justice Society members praising Dr. Midnight and Starman for the work and make Hootie their official mascot. Have you ever heard of Jakeem Thunder? Yeah, I like Jakeem. Yeah, he 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 showed up a while ago on in uh, the Teen Titans book issue issue thirty nine. Oh, okay. I'll uh, share the image just because it's just exactly the. Oh no, it's I can't share the image. Oh, okay, I, I'll see if I can look it up at some point. Yeah, I gotta mention there's one thing that kind of put me off about this is that you know he summons all the JSA and if I remember right, Starman isn't. It was Starman, right, who was joining at the same time as Dr. Midnight in this book, right? I believe so. Because, you know, Dr. Midnight wasn't summoned that first wish because he wasn't the member yet. But Starman was, even though he shouldn't be a member yet, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just one of those things. So that is the end of the story for the Justice Society. Um, and so we get into the... Wonder Woman story, which, you know, is the shortest part, but had the biggest impact. Um, So the story was called Introducing Wonder Woman, and it's basically Wonder Woman's origin. Um, As we know it, um, it's actually very identical to the movie in a way. Well, there are things from the uh, comic, the origin and the new 52. Yeah. So, yeah, here we see a plane arrive at an island princess and her friend. Is it Mala? Mela? I'm not sure. M-A-L-A. Discover this plane and shock. There's a man inside Uh, something unseen on Paradise Island. Uh, The princess carries him to their doctor and queen. Is it still pronounced Hippolyta here? It's spelled a little differently, so I'm not. I think it's spelled differently. H-I-P-P-O-L-Y-T. I'm going to just pronounce it Hippolyta. That's how I've always recognized this. Yeah, that's that's how it. So, yeah, yeah. regardless of spelling, it's still it's still the end. The end of the word is still or the end of the name is still the same. Okay, so, yeah, she shows up as well. Uh, They learn that the man is named Stephen Trevor and is a member of service. Uh, They plan on healing him up and sending him on his way, but keeping his eyes blinded so he can't discover where he is or who's helping him. But the princess takes a real liking to him, keeping watch over him for hours upon hours on end. Uh, This alarms the doctor who reports to the queen about her daughter's strange behavior. And Queen Hippolyta realizes that the princess is in love. Uh, So she calls her daughter to tell her the origins of the Amazon. And the princess confirms that she is, in fact, in love with this unconscious man who she just met and hasn't actually spoken a word to. The origin involves the Amazons being the strongest nation in the world and is being tested by Hercules and his men. Uh, Hippolyta was able to defeat Hercules in one-on-one combat thanks to her magic girdle given by Aphrodite. 
and Hercules steals this girdle and puts the Amazons into slavery, which angers Aphrodite and the women would become uh, succumbed to the men. But being tired of the slavery, the Amazons would rise up after another plea to Aphrodite. Hippolyta discovers, uh, recovers the girdle and overthrows the men. Uh, they take a fleet of ships from the men and set off on the ocean where they discover Paradise Island. And this is where they set up their society there, uh, where the magic girdle grants them all eternal life. And Paradise Island remains hidden from the rest of the world, allowing them to be free of men. And this is why Trevor must go. And in fact, this society is kind of where Marston pictures his ideal society would be. Perfection, basically. No wars, no crime, nothing. Just happy-go-lucky people just chilling on an island. All women. Uh, so, the planet Riza? What was that? I was going to say, I was joking. I jokingly said, oh, so the planet Riza from Star Trek uh, Next Gen. Oh. <laughs> I haven't seen that. Uh, is it... It's basically a pleasure planet. Where is it? Is it basically what the parody was on Futurama with the? Uh, oh God, no! I can't, I'm blanking on that one. Okay, so the the first canon uh, stuff with Riza is uh, Captain Picard gets put on shore leave, and he, you know what? I think it's best to tell you off air because <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty insane because Riza was created by. Ira Bear, who was most best known for DS9. And this is back when Gene Ronberry was still alive. Like he, he died a few, like a two, one or two years later. So. Hmm. So after the queen kind of shows the princess, you know, the story of the Amazons, she pulls out this magic sphere that had been given to her by Aphrodite that can show the world of men, uh, both past and future. Um, and so it's actually one of the super advanced tools that had been given to them that gives them an advantage over other civilizations. And so the sphere shows them the history of Stephen Trevor. Um, it shows him stumbling upon a spy ring um, as he's investigating it, as he goes to an airfield and investigates them. But upon confronting them, they drive him into a tree, knocking him unconscious uh, they decide to put him into a robot-controlled American plane and fly it over the American aerodrome, uh, but higher up, fly in a different plane and drop bombs on the aerodrome. Well, this happens, but in the middle of it, Trevor wakes up and takes control of this robot plane and then chases the other plane as far as he possibly can. But at the request of one of the bad guys... Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So yeah, he's chasing the other plane far away. One of the bad guys, Von Storm is requesting that they fly as far as away as they can so their plane isn't figured out. And during the chase, the robot plane runs out of gas, and that's when crashes into Paradise Island. Uh, no, he's the spy plane. Fritz is the character. Von Storm is the his uh, leader. Oh, do I have it backwards there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it says Fritz, the pilot of the spy plane, is panic-stricken as he realizes that he's, uh, he has a skilled opponent on his tail. He radios for instructions. So, ah, okay. And oh my god, Fun Storm looks so so damn cartoony. <laughs> Is he wearing a monocle too? If that's not a monocle, he has to have his eye checked because that looks that looks dangerous. <laughs> How huge the eyeball is! I'm zooming in. Uh, oh, the, it zoom must in. be a monocle. There's like a little 
thing that comes down from it. So I'm assuming it is. Yeah, it does seem. Actually, no. Was this before Pearl Harbor? Because I don't know. Because this is. I mean, this is eerily. When I was reading this, the plan, when they were talking about that plan, like the spots they were dropped the bombs on, I was. Let's just say I was mind hurt at trying to figure out if this was before or after. This technically happens like three months before. So this book was published on October 21st, 1941. or happened on 7th, 1941. That is some... That is... <laughs> some Nostradamus stuff. Right there. Uh, so yeah, the princess agrees to fly him back so he can finish his mission. Uh, but she wants to do it herself, but the queen will not have that. So Hippolyta discusses this with Aphrodite and Athena, both of whom hold America in very high regard uh, based on their comments. So you can tell this was definitely written by an American. Uh, Hippolyta agrees and decides to hold a contest so the best Amazon will take Trevor. However, she forbids her daughter from being in the tournament. So we all know how this is going to turn out. So the tournament is held, and with each contest, two participants come out victorious. Uh, one is Mala, Mela, I don't know, and this masked woman. Well, not necessarily masked. Uh, she has a she has a domino mask on. <laughs> yeah, mask is like the loosest term I could use here. Like you recognize her, like her facial features, and like her body features. Mm-hmm. If Hippolyta is not a, not not really a great mother because she can't. Really, <laughs> she, she doesn't recognize her own daughter, who she made from clay. Yeah, it's pretty sad. This this disguise should not be fooling anybody, especially a mother. And that deer looks it does not look like a deer. <laughs> no, it look it looks like it looks like a big uh, mix between a. Uh, Rabbit and a dog. Yeah. Which is just ungodly to think about. <laughs> yeah, when she passes, it almost kind of looks like it turns into a donkey somewhat. Oh, my. Oh, my, oh man. I don't malnourish one of that. <laughs> so, yeah, as these two are winning each contest, uh, basically one last contest between the two of them uh, called Bullets and Bracelets. And this is where each participant will have bracelets to catch bullets fired at them by the other opponent. Uh, The masked woman is shot at first and catches each bullet with ease. Uh, But when the roles reverse, Mala, Mela, (laughs) isn't fast enough and is shot at the arm. Uh, The masked woman, or should I say, what was that? Uh, She got shot in her shoulder. Oh, yeah. Uh, My shoulder. (laughs) Yeah. Also, if if this is supposed to be utopic... Why do they, they have a gun? <laughs> why do they have a gun? That that sh- I mean that's their the gun is the guns are the easiest way to to convey uh, conflict. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you've basically gone through a cultural ascendance, I, I will quote Gene Roddenberry when get when when it, when it came to pa- casting Pat, uh, Patrick Stewart in Next Gen. Hair doesn't mean anything in the 24th century. <laughs> And this is this that was in regard in response to uh, the head of Paramount at the time, or no, the vice someone one of the, one one of the higher ups at Paramount, uh, John Pike, who said, "He, he Gene, 
he has no hair. He's bald. <laughs> that's that's in the you have to watch that documentary if you. When, <laughs> never can. It's on. It, 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 luckily, it's on YouTube. So I'll do that. I can't imagine Patrick Stewart with anything other than being bald. I refuse to refuse to even think of it. Yes, yeah, so the masked woman, you know, reveals herself to be the princess and declared the winner. Uh, Polita gives her the name Diana after her godmother, the goddess of the moon, which apparently she's lived this long without a proper name, which also seems odd to me. Again, bad mother. <laughs> bad mother. <laughs> and just, yeah, it just says, daughter, you! <laughs> and then she, yeah, she then gives her the iconic costume. The most, the most American design. Yep, something she could wear there in America. The red top with a golden eagle and a blue skirt, white stars on it. And so the like final message for Wonder Woman just says, "And so Diana, the Wonder Woman, giving up her heritage and her right to eternal life, leaves Paradise Island to take the man she loves back to America, the land she learns to love and protect and adopts as her own." And that is. The end of All-Star Comics number eight. As a whole, do you have anything to say about that issue? Uh, this definitely varies from the... Did you ever watch the the one, the one adaptation of Wonder Woman? Like the animated one? Um, not the most recent one, right? Um, I think the most recent one was like... Was it like Blood and something? Uh, no. Um, Wonder Woman... The Wonder Woman film from, from 2009. Okay, yeah, that one I have seen. Yeah, uh, Gail Simone worked on it and it was based on Wonder Woman Gods and Mortals. I should watch that one again. I remember it being really good, but... Yeah, yeah. had an all-star cast. Uh, Carrie, Carrie Russell played, voiced Wonder Woman. Nathan Fillion voiced Steve Trevor, which is ironic because he would end <laughs> up voicing uh, Hal Jordan. Yeah, the cast, uh, uh, John DiMaggio as... Deimos, uh Oliver Platt as Hades, which is a good casting. <laughs> uh, Alfred Molina as Ares, Rosario Dawson as Artemis. Have you ever seen Legends of Tomorrow? No, I have not. There is a uh, back in season three, so like 2018, there's an episode where they were dealing with Helen of Troy and individual members of the team were drawn to her. Hmm. So they ended up having dropping her off at it somewhere where she wouldn't have that problem, <laughs> and it ends up being Themyscira. Huh. And this was this this was before they brought Batwoman into the universe, before Crisis, before Elseworlds, hell, even before uh, Crisis on Earth X. So let's get into some other trivia there. There's there's so much we could talk about in terms of Wonder Woman, um, but I figured that would probably be better if we <laughs> separate podcast on either Marston or just the character of Wonder Woman herself. Yeah, so here's some random trivia. So as we mentioned, uh, Marston and Wonder Woman will have quite a bit of controversy over the years. Uh, for instance, almost immediately upon Sensation Comics number one being released, the National Organization for Decent Literature put it on the blacklist for not being 
uh, quote, sufficiently dressed. Marston obviously had controversy both with the binding of Wonder Woman and his relationship with Olive. Yeah, for instance, regarding the binding, um, every superhero had some sort of character bound, but Wonder Woman featured it 27% of the time in the books, whereas others would only include it roughly 3%. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> Sir Man, Kryptonite, Green Lantern, anything yellow mm-hmm. and wooden. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Johnny Thunder. Existing. Competency. <laughs> and existing. Existence. So it's just got sad when, you know, a quarter of your book is spent being bound up and weak. It's like, imagine Superman, a fourth of the book is nothing but under tonight or. Oh, yeah. no, that's that's sort of exists. That's that's what <laughs> that's the. um, That's the first like four or five seasons of Smallville. <laughs> that is true. The most recent episode of Smallville Chronicles I did, it was the re- rehearsal dinner where Clark gets infected with red, red kryptonite. Oh, uh, <laughs> and brings Lois there, and just Welling just is just playing a, just an, an evil version of Clark, <laughs> and then just abducts uh, Lana is about to kill Lex when you hear the the kryptonite sound effect because it's just so easy to to identify. <laughs> and then um, it's like they could they could easily do a twist like not necessarily Brightburn, but something more like a, a horror version of Superman where or the entire town is where he's like has control of the entire town out of fear. And I mean, it probably wouldn't do do well ratings wise, but still. Anyway, back to the trivia. So another thing that Marston wanted to do with Wonder Woman was to be a propaganda piece to further feminism. He had a quote here. Frankly, Wonder Woman is psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who I believe should rule the world. And that is something else that if we were to do a story on Wonder Woman, we could talk about how just how far she went into, you know, being on the cover of other magazines for women and all that. And, Um, you know, Ms. Magazine, right? Yep. So, yeah, he wanted her to be a propaganda piece, and he absolutely succeeded in that. Um, then to try and lower the controversy of the book, Wonder Woman was added into other books as well. Uh, for example, she was made the secretary of the JSA instead of a typical member. And part of that was because Gardner Fox didn't quite know how to write her the way that Marston intended. Um, and so this is where some of the character discrepancies would come into play. And then for the keep them flying comment that kept coming up throughout the story. Um, I looked into it and assuming this is why it was the official motto of the U S army air Corps. Um, it was used to encourage young men to volunteer for flight training. And it was also inspired, uh, aircraft factory workers during world war two. So that just bothered me to the point. I had to figure out why it was said so much. It's also, um, it's also the name of an Abbott, Abbott and Costello comedy. Oh, is it? <laughs> Yeah, apparently it's, according to this thing on YouTube, a hilarious comedy, one of the greatest comedy acts of yesteryear. (laughs) And yeah, there's, um, I found a U.S. Army Air Force technical command, keep them flying World War II job placement film. I'm sure that's wonderful. (laughs) It's in black and white, so. (laughs) Yeah, that's all I have for this. And so with that, let's wrap up All-Star Comics number eight and get into our Closing section here. 
Okay, so thank you for listening. Uh, rate and review on whatever service you listen to your podcast on. Uh, that helps us with being recognized um, on those charts, but it's also a way that we can improve the show as well. So any input that you can put in, please do. Um, that's important to us, and it's how we can you know make the show better. Um, also, don't forget to follow Hypertime to Podcast on Twitter at HypertimePod. Um, if you have any questions or topic suggestions, you can leave them there as well. Or you can email us at hypertime, the number two podcast at gmail.com. Um, if you do follow our Twitter, I'm trying to be quite active on there. Uh, we are recording this in October and I've been putting up a, you know, a horror series of some sort every day. So if you are listening to this and need some scary books, to read you know check back in october i think this is going out in end of december or beginning of january if i remember right uh so yeah just go back and you can see at least up to 31 books i'm suggesting you should read if you're more into like the video game side of things um you can check us out on vgu.tv we also have a twitter there at vgu underscore tv so check out everything there. Um, podcasts, we also do as well for video games. Uh, check out Players Club podcast and Win, which is the weekly in uh, week in news podcast. And, you know, satisfy your video game need there. Uh, as for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at jmilly99. That's jmill 99 I totally misspelled my own damn Twitter name. It's J-M-I-L-L-E-9-9. Um, and then, Alan, where can they follow you at? They can follow me on Twitter at the Alamir. And uh, just because I usually mention some, a recent tweet on here, is it is another Star Trek thing that I tweeted a day ago from uh, the DS9 TOS crossover, Trials and Tribulations. Quote, do they still sing songs of the great and glorious Tribble Hunt? This is after uh, Worf tells Odo that uh, the Tribbles were basically a scourge upon the upon the uh, galaxy. Oh, <laughs> and despite being soft and or nice and cuddly, and the episode ends with uh, Tribbles all over Quark's bar. Oh, and subscribe to VGU.TV podcasts on iTunes. Also, su- subscribe to uh, the Fam Zone podcast, where I, I where a show I do with the. Uh, Another friend of mine, Lou Gonzalez, where we have we been doing the show for three years now. Long time. Yeah, since 2000, I'll say 2017, 2017 or 2018. It's, or by the time this comes out, it'll have been four years. And that's a Smallville one, right? Yeah, Smallville Chronicles. Yeah, rate and review those too. Don't leave us hanging. We want your feedback. And please, if you want me off the show, I'm not going anywhere. Nope. He's staying. I'm the, I, I don't know if you listened to Josh. I don't know if you listened to the latest, uh, not not the latest, latest, but the uh, last week's edition of uh, the Win podcast. I made Graydon very uncomfortable by making him refer, refer to me as boss man. <laughs> like he said something. And I'm like, do you know who I am? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, boss man. <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to play catch up with everything. My kids are on weird school schedules right now so even my research for the show has kind of been kind of put on hiatus until i can uh, get kind of everything back in gear we'll see how that works out because what we're doing right what i'm doing right now is 
I'm excited for it. But man, there's going to be a lot to it. Um, so yeah, with all that, uh, we will bid you all adieu. Uh, see you further down the hyper time. And I hope you all take care. Bye.